Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. One book off of the Canon shelf that I wanted to recommend to you guys was called Rules for Reformers by Douglas Wilson. Doug poaches the political craft of radical progressives and applies it to Christian efforts in the current culture war. The result is a spicy blend of combat manual and cultural manifesto. Rules for Reformers is a little bit proclamation of grace, a little bit art of war, and a little bit analysis of past embarrassments and current cowardice, all mixed together with a bunch of advanced knife-fighting techniques. As motivating as it is provocative, Rules for Reformers is just plain good to read. You can get the book at canonpress.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 153, 153. I want to begin by talking about um, the practice of anticipating objections and how liberalism grows. Anticipating objections and how liberalism grows. Now, of course, every debater, every public speaker um, has to anticipate objections. If you've been through one or more Q&A sessions after one of your talks, uh, there, there will be FAQs. There will be frequently asked questions. You can see this in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul has had little groups of people around him in the back of the synagogue on numerous occasions, and that's why he's able to say, going through the book of Romans, one of you will say to me then, okay, uh, and what, he's, what is he doing? He's anticipating objections. Um, in chapter 6, he says, one of you will say, then, if we're saved by grace, then why not sin that grace may abound? Or he says, some, one of you will say to me, why does God still find fault in chapter 9? For who resists his will? So Paul is used to saying something, having somebody say something, and he anticipates that. So I have no uh, beef against anticipating objections in that sense, in that way. Every competent public speaker, every competent debater does that sort of thing all the time. But there's a different kind of anticipating objections that is the, one of the sneakiest ways that liberalism grows. You can see in evangelical churches or ostensibly evangelical churches or churches that are uh, purportedly Bible, Bible-believing churches, when this, starts, when this pattern starts to happen, you can be assured that this church is in the process, somewhere along the sliding scale, it's in the process of going liberal. Okay? So, the debater, the shrewd debater, is going to anticipate an objection, and he's going to have an answer to that objection in his hip pocket. That's what the Apostle Paul does. He says, one of you will say to me then, and then he asks the question on behalf of the interlocutor, and then he answers that objection. So what Paul does is he lays out an argument, anticipates the objection, and then answers the objection that he anticipated. Liberalism grows when people start saying this. If you say that, if you argue that, 
then won't some people misunderstand you? And when they misunderstand you, won't that cause a lot of pain and hurt? And and because it's going to cause a lot of pain and hurt, wouldn't it be better if you didn't say this thing at all? Can't we just avoid the Q&A session? You don't anticipate, in other words, in this system, you don't anticipate objections so that you can answer the question. You anticipate objections so that you can stay out of trouble, and you stay out of trouble by never bringing up the controversial topic. So don't you think that if you say that, then some people, so you're, you're a male preacher, you've never been a woman. If you address feminine sins from the pulpit or feminine temptations from the pulpit, don't you think that some people misunderstand that? And if they're going to misunderstand it, then shouldn't we just let sleeping dogs lie? Shouldn't we just let it go? Shouldn't we just not open up that can of worms at all? And that's how denominations go liberal. That's how magazines go liberal. That's how publishing houses go liberal. That's how seminaries go liberal. That's how denominations go liberal. They do it by saying, let's stay out of controversy. Let's stay out of trouble. Now, this is why early liberals can oftentimes sign orthodox statements of faith in good conscience. In other words, not everybody I read somewhere, and I think this is probably uh, probably a sound figure that when the when the mainline Presbyterian Church went liberal, when they lost their seminaries and lost it, when they lost everything, eighty percent or more of their ministers were evangelical ministers. In other words, the majority of the the majority of the denomination was still orthodox when the when the denomination was captured. Uh, and you say, well, how's that possible? Well, I, what, perce- what percentage of your body has to have cancer before you're in trouble? If your lymph nodes are riddled with cancer, are you in trouble, even if that's only less than 5% of your body? Well, yes, of course, you're, you're in deep trouble because it doesn't matter what percentage uh, of your body the lymph nodes are. Uh, if the if the liberals captured, as they did in the, pres- in the case of the Presbyterians, if they captured the seminaries and they captured the mission board and they captured uh, key presbyteries, then in effect they had, the, they had the lymph nodes, right? And the way it happens, the way this uh, develops is by well-meaning, tender-hearted, true, genuine Orthodox believers saying, I don't really think you should say that because that's controversial. Somebody might take that wrong, and you're responsible if they take it wrong. That's how liberalism grows. Hamartiology, podcast episode 153, 153. Our word for this venture into hamartiology is acharistos, the word meaning unthankful, unthankful, acharistos. There are two instances of this word being used in Scripture. The first use simply mentions unthankful people as a category. Unthankful people as a category. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. God is kind to the unthankful. We are 
reminded here how kind God is to the ingrates of the world, who are a multitude. The ingrates of the world are a multitude. How easy is it to take the gifts of God for granted? He takes simple water that falls out of the sky, just plain old water, H2O. Um, H2O falls out of the sky, and that's a wonderful gift in its own right, but uh, takes this water that tastes the same all over the world, and it's not like much. Uh, And it falls out of the sky, and God turns that water into the taste of strawberries, watermelons, blueberries, apples, oranges, and corn on the cob. In addition to the corn on the cob, he arranged for cows to produce milk, which can be turned into butter, which can be put on the corn on the cob. And then he arranged for salt to be put on the buttered corn. So what do we, what do we have going on? We, in order to have, I mean, it's summertime, you've probably had corn on the cob already, right? So you've got water that falls out of the sky that turns into the taste of sweet corn. You have water that falls out of the sky that turns into the taste of grass, which cows apparently like. The cows eat the grass, and they turn that into milk. Somebody milks the cow, and they turn that milk into butter. You put that butter on, the, uh, on your cob of corn, and it is glorious. And then on top of that, meanwhile, independent of all this, you've got great salt mines down below. And these salt mines are mined and by Morton or somebody, and then the salt is shuttled to a grocery store near you, and you are given the gift of corn on the cob, buttered, salted corn on the cob. And that's just one taste. Remember I, I mentioned the water, watermelon and strawberries and all those things earlier. When, you, when we think of all the things that God is giving us, you know, whether it's a breeze in the tree above your backyard, or it's the way the, the, the colors of the grass, or the taste of your fruit at breakfast, whatever it is. God, if we thanked God for every gift that he gave us, we'd be thanking him all the time. I think, I think God has designed it so that we, he gives us so much. All of us are standing under a Niagara Falls of blessing and gifts every moment. and. Our conscious thoughts are a little teaspoon that we can scoop out and say, out of all these things you've given me, I I render back thanks to you for this little teaspoon. Again, we see the seriousness of certain sins by the company that the scriptural writers put them in. This is back to harmatiology, right? For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful. There it is, unthankful unholy. That's 2 Timothy 3, 2. All right, so uh, it's bad to be an ingrate, bad to be unthankful, um, and that kind of ingratitude uh, persisted in over uh, uh, an extended period of time is, of course, damnable. This is podcast 153. And we come to the book review section, and the book this time around is Why We Sleep by a gent named Walker. Why We Sleep by Walker. I want to begin by, uh, with a little caveat or warning. Um, Walker is a sleep specialist, a sleep scientist, and he is, he's a wealth of information. But like many specialists, he is, um, he, I think he falls into the trap of when you first 
when you when you find a really good hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, so I think there are a lot of things that he attributes to lack of sleep. So he's trying to help people sleep, and he's figured out all kinds of things about sleep. Um, but it's uh, it's the sort of thing where it'd be easy for someone in his position to put a few extra eggs in the pudding and claim more for sleep than is actually, uh, you know, sleep helping to, good sleep helping to prevent cancer and that sort of thing. I think that's where he gets out on the skinny branches. But the the book was uh, a really interesting read for me. Um, anyway, just fact, dial the dial the knob back a couple of ticks, and I think you'll really um, you you'll really enjoy this book and really profit from it. Uh, so I just turned sixty seven the other day, and um, or actually, time now that you're old, now that I'm old, time goes back faster. It wasn't the other day; it was a couple of weeks ago. So, but I just turned sixty seven. I did do that. And that means, think about this, I have spent approximately 22 years sound asleep. So over a lifespan of 67 years, I've spent a third of it asleep. Now this apparently, this is a design feature. Why does God want all of us wasting that much time? Why does God want all of us conked out. Well, this book, Why We Sleep, is, uh, oh, another caution here. Uh, Periodically, it's not pervasive. It's not a big problem. But like a lot of books uh, of this nature, there are evolutionary comments sprinkled in here and there. But the the mechanisms of sleep are so exquisitely designed that um, the intelligent design that that screams at you from every page more than outweighs his occasional uh, hat tip to evolution. So so be aware of that. Don't worry about it. Sleep is rejuvenating. Sleep is invigorating. Sleep helps you memorize things. So, uh, and so one of the things he does, and and this is a one another one of those books that help you understand. Um, a certain kind of person who thinks up bizarre psychological tests, right? So what they what they've done is, for example, they'll they'll have uh, a random group of people um, uh, memorize some facts, and then uh, some of them take a test on what they've studied after. Um, like after a week, I'm not remembering the studies exactly right, but it's this sort of thing where uh, some, some people take a test after a full restful night's sleep. Other people take the same test with their sleep interrupted. It's quite striking that sleep helps you retain things you've memorized. Sleep helps you retain things you've studied. Um, I like to, th- I've thought for years that sleep is when God shuffles the deck you know he 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 uh, sorts things out well it's not just it's not shuffling the deck in the sense of increased randomization it's shuffling the deck in the sense of uh worker bees in your brain filing things away in the right place so um it's as though you uh, it's it's as though you stored up a bunch of things and brought them 
to your house and dumped them on your dining room table and then went to bed and got up in the morning and they were all put away. Well, it's not that way physically, obviously, but it is that way mentally. So you, you take in a bunch of facts, you learn a bunch of things, and then sleep helps you solidify your understanding. Uh, this book is crammed full of um, illustrations and stories like that, and it's just really remarkable. Sleep is a wonderful gift that God has given us, and uh, a book, Why We Sleep by Walker, is going to help you appreciate that gift more. Mm-hmm.